0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.
1: The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of of grace, grace, the the Lord Lord is with with thee, thee. blessed art thou among women, women, and blessed blessed is the the fruit of thy womb, womb, Jesus. Jesus. blessed Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray pray for us sinners sinners, now and at the hour of our death. death amen pray for us o holy mother of god that we may be made worthy of the promises of christ let us pray pour forth we beseech you o lord your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of christ your son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross Be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week's Fall Meeting of Bishops is the main focus of this episode. Hear more about how the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is prayerfully making changes on issues like the sexual abuse crisis and racism. Then it's on to the second annual World Day of the Poor. Bishop Rhodes talks about how we are called to love the materially poor and spiritually poor. The show wraps up with questions from listeners. If you have a question for a future episode, just go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop.
0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop, and we thank you again, as always, Bishop, for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. We're actually pre-recording this because as people are listening to this, it'll be one of the final days of the fall USCCB meeting. That's happening this week. Yes. By the way, thanks for calling me your good bishop. I appreciate that. You are. (laughs) You are. I I think we're very blessed in this diocese to have you and and, uh, following the footsteps of Bishop Darcy as well. So many great things that have come from that. And obviously other people recognize you as being a good bishop, uh, electing you as chair of the Committee on Doctrine. Yes, that was an elected position a year ago,
1: November. Uh, yeah, and that kicks so I've been in. chair elect this past year, or so I become officially become chair of the committee on doctrine after this week's meeting. Okay,
0: all right, and for those that are aren't familiar really with these fall meetings that you have, what are some of the things that come up and are discussed? at the fall well the agenda
1: is different each year i mean depending on on what's happening of course this is a very important meeting this year the agenda is unusual because rather than have a lot of the ordinary business that we have it's been shortened quite a bit the ordinary business because of our dealing with the uh the sex abuse crisis Mm -hmm. so actually monday we'll be spending the whole day in prayer which is also something we normally don't do in the fall uh, meeting. We'll, we'll usually end with a morning of recollection, but we're gonna spend the whole day Monday in prayer. Hmm. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, we'll be looking at various proposals in response to the sex abuse crisis. There are items on the agenda of, of how to do this. And I think the last day, will be an executive session. The one major area or issue apart from the sex abuse crisis is we'll be voting on a statement that's been worked on for quite some time on racism, a pastoral statement. It's really a pastoral letter against racism. Hmm. And uh, it's entitled, Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love, A Pastoral Letter Against Racism. Back in 1979, the bishops had a pastoral letter on racism called Brothers and Sisters to Us, and it's a beautiful letter. Hmm. And um, it's been all these years since then, and because of various things that have been happening in our society, some of the harmful rhetoric and even some violent incidents with racial overtones, the bishops felt that it would be important for us to write a new pastoral letter. So that was agreed upon by the bishops a few years ago, but then it takes a few years to do this because there's various drafts when we have a document, we have various committees that, that will review such a letter. The principal committee that worked on this pastoral letter on racism is the Committee on Cultural Diversity in the church that's one of the usccb committees so it did a wide consultation of bishops and worked on various drafts and we're at the final stage now it's had all this input and uh i expect that it'll be passed but it'll have to be voted on by the bishops again the whole idea of being concerned about the rise in in racist expressions in our Mm -hmm. society you see it sometimes in public discourse on social media mm-hmm. so we're not only condemning racism but but trying to raise awareness and assisting our pastors and educators etc that we need to really be aware of the harmful effects of of racism and how it impacts people and really highlighting our Catholic teaching on the dignity of every human person. Sure. So that's, I would say, the, the kind of a normal part of our business. But as I mentioned, we'll be spending, I believe, two full days on addressing the sex abuse crisis. I don't know if you want to know more about that. Or Sure, yeah. Well, I think everyone knows, and we've talked about it on the show in the last couple months, especially with the revelations about Archbishop McCarrick. There have been a lot of, uh, definitely a lot of things in the news. So the leadership of the USCCB has worked very hard to address this crisis. And um, the one thing is our executive committee, which is the president, vice president, uh, secretary and treasurer of the USCCB, those four bishops met with the Holy Father and requested a full investigation Mm -hmm. of what happened in the... Archbishop McCarrick case. Mm -hmm. And then the four dioceses in which he served are also doing an investigation. So I presume we'll have maybe some update on that at the meeting. But the particular things that that we'll be considering is a code of conduct for bishops. You know, often we have for our employees a code of conduct or code of conduct for our priests. And I think the uh, the proposal is that we need to have a code of conduct for bishops, and I think the uh, yeah we've received a draft code and that'll be voted on at our meeting. Mm-hmm. There was another new proposal to have a policy for a bishop who's resigned or retired or been suspended or removed because of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. sexual harassment, or abuse of power. And um, that's very important too, because every bishop really is accountable to the pope, mm-hmm. and the pope can't oversee every bishop in the world. And so, it, it, it seems important that there be a policy. I mean, we look at the McCarrick situation. He, after his retirement, you know, how much authority? Like, what, what would be the the way to to proceed in a case like this? A bishop who has committed something like this so right. there'll be a draft policy for us to look at and vote on so that it would give some more authority to the local bishop you know who succeeds one of these bishops to be able to restrict the ministry of a retired bishop who's mm-hmm. been removed or retired because of sexual abuse i think anything like that well it's going to need the the approval of rome because the conference doesn't have any authority over individual bishops um, you know mm-hmm. it's only the vatican but we can at least you know propose policies that then the holy see the pope would say okay this is a good way to proceed another thing is we're going to look at a third party reporting system for reporting on sexual abuse or sexual harassment by a bishop we had in the charter for the protection of of minors children and young people it's very clear how to report an allegation of sexual abuse uh, by a priest or deacon. Mm -hmm. But what do you do if the allegations against the bishop? So it seems best that there be a third party reporting system and that's, um, and also we're looking at a a lay commission, commission of laity to assist the Apostolic Nuncio in the investigation of reports of sexual abuse or harassment by bishops Mm -hmm. or the failure of a bishop in responding to claims of sexual abuse of clergy. Mm-hmm. So it's a little complicated. I think you'll see in the news what the results will be. I've asked the people of the diocese to to pray for the bishops during this time because it, it really is a challenging time. But I am hopeful that um, learning from what happened in the McCarrick case and a few other cases of bishops who've been credibly accused, that we really need a process and policies to deal with that so it'll be quite a uh, i'm sure a lot of discussion on those matters usually at these november meetings there's usually at the beginning a speech by the president of the conference who mm-hmm. at this time is cardinal Donardo of houston and also a presentation each november by the apostolic nuncio mm-hmm. the pope's representative to the united states so They will take place, I think, on Monday, that day of prayer. We'll also have those two talks uh, to the bishops. Of course, we have mass every day, and there's opportunities um, for, we pray the Liturgy of the Hours together while we're meeting, Mm -hmm. and that's pretty normal. We always get a report from the National Advisory Council, which is a a large group of, of lay people who provide advice to the bishops on the various matters that are on our agenda Mm -hmm. that's always very helpful i think a lot of people don't realize that that we have a national advisory council of lay people Uh and then of course the national review board which is the that lay board that advises us on on the whole issue of of sex abuse and our policies in that area especially in um, implementing the charter and this time we'll have some election of officers as as you mentioned i was elected chair of the committee on doctrine at the november meeting last year mm-hmm. we have an election this year of various committee chairs and also we'll be voting on a treasurer for example i know we'll be voting on a chairperson for the committee on catholic education okay. very important committee of the conference. The Committee on Clergy, Consecrated Life, and Vocations. The Committee on Divine Worship. The Committee Mm -hmm. on Domestic Justice and Human Development. The Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. And I had been Chair of that some years ago. And the Committee on Migration. So, there's a number of the
0: committees that... Um, so, those are just the ones that are up for election. So, how many committees are there total?
1: You know, I want to say maybe 17 or 18. Okay. You know, we have the Committee on Pro-Life Activities. I also serve, by the way, on the Committee for Religious Liberty as a member, not as chair. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think. We have the Committee on Evangelization Catechesis, a Committee on communication. So uh, yeah, there are a lot of committees and they're programmatic. They're programmatic committees. And some of the committees, for example, have subcommittees Um, like in my committee on doctrine. I have two subcommittees, one on healthcare
0: issues Uh and another on the translation of scripture texts. And I'll mention, since you brought up the healthcare issues, you actually had a conversation on our locally produced show, Dr. Doctor. That was episode 29 people can find that at redeemer com slash doctor and just scroll down to episode 29 to hear bishop's thoughts on ethics of medicine and how the committee of doctrine might get involved with that the term for you being the chair of that is three years yes three years and what are some of the other responsibilities of that committee first of all the committee of bishops on
1: the doctrine committee, I'm the chair, mm-hmm. I appoint the bishop members, and there are nine of us, I appoint eight, mm-hmm. but I also have. we also have some consultants that I've appointed. They're theologians, basically. Uh-huh. But I think this is important for people to know. We have a, a staff, I have a staff in Washington at the headquarters of the USCCB that does the day-to-day work of the committee. Okay. Um, It's called the Secretariat for Doctrine. Okay. And so they're really excellent. And there's an executive director, so I'll be in frequent contact with him. And, um, oh, Kyle, I forgot, what was your question? Uh, Just some of the issues that would be coming up. Well, you never know. I mean, Uh I know one of the issues that we've been dealing with uh, lately is the whole issue of gender ideology, Mm -hmm. the whole transgender issue, uh, which is certainly an issue of moral theology and the moral doctrine of the church. It depends on what matters are brought to our attention, to Uh be honest. So um, I know one thing we've been looking at is – Lyrics in certain hymns that are sung oh, okay. in, in our Catholic hymnals that aren't really doctrinally correct, mm-hmm. so we'll look at hoping to change some of those. so really, it depends you know um, on what issues arise, and we might be asked by certain bishops for advice. let's say the conference is preparing a document like this one on racism. Mm-hmm. It'll always go through our committee for a doctrinal review. Okay. So we do a lot of that. If there's any kind of a, a letter or a statement coming from the USCCB, it, it would usually be, re, be reviewed by my committee. So to make sure of doctrinal correctness.
0: Would just one person read through that, or does everybody read through no, and mark up all look, the document, and then you combine
1: yeah. everybody's feedback? And well, The staff would do the first look okay. at it, but then it would come for the review of the bishops on the committee and for my review. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we usually take questions from listeners at the end of the show, but one of our listeners sent in a set of questions that I think would be really appropriate to go through talking about this conversation. So coming up, we will ask some of those questions, Bishop, if you don't mind. And you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash askbishop. You could call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have more about the fall meeting of the USCCB right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop. And one of the questions that we got from a listener was actually a, a series of questions about the fall meeting of the US bishops. And so if you don't mind, Bishop, we'd like to ask those questions. Rosie Cook from St. Vincent de Paul Parish in Fort Wayne said, when the U.S. bishops have their general big meetings, and then she has a bunch of follow-up questions here, so we'll just go through them one at a time. Who or how is it decided, what will be on the agenda?
1: That's a good question. We have an administrative committee of the USCCB that is comprised, it's a pretty large committee because it, it's comprised of the chairman of all the committees. Okay. as well as the officers of the conference. I think some bishops who are the representatives of the various Episcopal regions. So hmm. it's that administrative committee that looks at proposed agenda items. I believe probably the executive committee puts the original draft together, but then it's actually the administrative committee that not only decides what the agenda items are approved for the for the meeting but also the amount of time that's allotted to each agenda item okay and they try to stick to that i mean it's yeah. never oh it's not always possible but uh, so really it's the administrative committee that um, makes the decision of what will be on the agenda how is the voting done for deciding on things new guidelines etc Well, we usually do electronic voting. That's a newer thing. It used to be paper ballots. Uh And it depends on um, who's allowed to vote. It depends on the issue that we're dealing with, according to church law. For example, retired bishops do not have a vote. Okay. But diocesan bishops and auxiliary bishops, uh, coadjutor bishops have the right to vote. There may be a few things. There are, like, for example, a financial thing. Like, if we're deciding on what the diocesan assessment's going to be, the dues, that's reserved to just the diocesan bishops. The auxiliary bishops aren't allowed to vote on that. Okay. Um, so, so that's interesting things. Sometimes we need just a majority, sometimes two-thirds, depending on the type of issue it is. Okay. Um,
0: yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Okay. okay, Rosie has some more questions here. How much leeway do they have to make decisions without having the Pope approve?
1: That's a very good question. As a matter of fact, it's something that's been debated by scholars for a long time. I think it's important to understand that an Episcopal conference, like the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, has primarily a pastoral function. In other words, it's the bishops of our country that um, jointly exercise pastoral leadership. Each bishop of course, as the pastor in his own diocese, but the USCCB basically is to support the ministry of the individual bishops. I would add to that, that there are certain times where we have a document that is is a teaching document. But when it comes to something like that, we can't really issue what I'd call a, a teaching document, per se, which would be teaching doctrine, without the subsequent approval by the Holy See. Okay. You know, so when you look at the the doctrinal competence, and usually if it's going to be a teaching document, it would have to be unanimously approved. Okay. So it's pretty strict in that area. Is it also pretty rare um, that you do those kind of probably, documents? Probably, yeah. I, I would say, yeah. So if there's not a a unanimity we could still like let's say there's just a few who voted against it we could submit it to the apostolic see and they could say go ahead but we couldn't do it on our own authority okay. so i guess you could say there's limits to the authority of an episcopal conference when it comes to the teaching mm-hmm. um, obviously any teaching that we do in a document has to be in line with the universal teaching of the church the universal magisterium sure one of the things that we worked on that i think maybe some of the listeners know is the u.s catechism uh, Mm -hmm. for adults which is obviously a teaching document it's a very good good book very good catechism but that needed the approval of the holy see before we issued it i think those kinds of it would be very difficult for an individual bishop to do a diocesan catechism. I mean, imagine, you you know, so we have a national catechism that's based on the universal catechism.
0: So I hope that helps. Yeah. Rosie also asked, are lay people allowed to attend any or all of the functions? The only ones who are allowed are those
1: who have a special permission and they would have to have clearance. There are some press who are there and laity for example representing some different organizations Uh, but it's a very
0: limited number and they attend as observers okay she also asked who pays for these gatherings hotels food conference rooms and travel
1: definitely the hotel and travel are paid by the diocese of each uh each of the bishops and i think there's a registration fee that probably
0: covers the food and the conference rooms, etc. Sure. And Rosie's final question, if the people have a strong opinion about how we want them to make changes in regard to the scandals, does it help to do letter writing campaigns to bishops? I think the laity always have the right to
1: send letters to the bishop to express mm-hmm. their opinion on things that can be very helpful in our whole consultation you know like i mentioned with the usccb as a whole we do have the national advisory council of laity that as i mentioned is is really good i always like to hear their report to hear their opinion on the various items on our agenda Mm -hmm. including these uh this issue that we're going to be talking about this time that have to do with sexual abuse Mm -hmm and also the National Review Board, their opinion is really important. Just like here in the diocese, I receive through different uh, ways the opinions of people. Of course, we have the Diocesan Review Board when it comes to matters of sexual abuse. But also, there's other ways. For example, when I'm dealing with financial decisions, Mm -hmm. you know, I consult always with our diocesan finance council, which is the great majority of the members are laity, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in these areas where I wouldn't have that kind of financial background or competence. So the role of the laity is is really important and also in other areas i mean it's like in every parish we have parish pastoral councils and parish finance councils so i think the
0: the voice of the laity is essential all right well again remember to keep the bishops in your prayers especially as they have this conference and coming up we'll talk about the second annual World Day of the Poor a breakdown of the scripture being used for it and get into questions asked by you the listener right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and Coming up, another gathering of bishops. We just talked about the fall meeting of the USCCB. Uh, There's also a retreat that's going to be happening for the bishops at Mundlin Seminary. Is that something that you would be attending? Yes, it was actually Pope
1: Francis who um, has asked us to do a week-long retreat together. Mm -hmm. We usually do retreats by regions. And our region, 7, the retreat's usually in August. But this is a special retreat that the Pope has asked the bishops to go on. And as you mentioned, it'll be the first week of January at Mundelein Seminary, which is in Chicago, so it's not that far for me to get to. Yeah. So, yes, I do intend to attend that retreat. And uh, the Pope is sending, uh, as the director of the retreat, the speaker, Father Cantalamesa, who is the papal preacher, a Capuchin priest but because of the crisis that we're facing in the church in the united states the holy father has asked us to meet together for this retreat what would be the goal of the retreat do you think to become
0: holier <laughs> pretty good goal yes Has has there ever been a retreat like this for all the bishops you mentioned that the the fall meeting for the will have a whole day of prayer, so I guess it's kind of like that. We would
1: normally do a half a day, but okay. in November. But every three years, our meeting in the spring, because we always meet in the spring as well in June, that's always a retreat format. Okay. Every three years, and that June meeting of the bishops is not held in Baltimore, but it's held at a different site every year because the idea is instead of bishops let's say from the west coast always having to yeah go to the east coast or so usually i well, last year it was in
0: indianapolis but normally it's in the south or western part of the country okay and my understanding is the retreat at mudlan would be in the ignatian style i that? you know i didn't i don't know i didn't hear that okay. uh, i love ignatian
1: style but what would a, that mean for he's a, retrap- a capuchin so i don't know um, <laughs> Ignatian style is following the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, and, and
0: really that's my favorite type of retreat. Okay. Well, you'll have to let us know how it goes then. Sure. Uh, also, this coming Sunday, November 18th, is the second World Day of the Poor. The This was something that was instituted by Pope Francis to really start with assistance for those in Rome, but also spread this worldwide. So... What are your thoughts on the World Day of the Poor? Is there anything that will be happening in our diocese for that? Well, the Pope instituted this World Day of the Poor,
1: you know, at the end of the year of mercy. And it really hasn't spread much, I don't think. I think there are a few countries where it's um, it's been celebrated or observed. Mm-hmm. Um, I know... For example, reading something that they were observing it in Poland. I'm not sure if it's caught on here in the United States yet, but I think it's a very good initiative. And um, I'm going to be checking things out to see what kind of materials. I know at the Vatican, Pope Francis celebrated a special mass for this World Day of the Poor. And then, if I'm not mistaken, he also had like a free lunch in the audience hall after the mass Uh for the poor and uh he also did something of free medical services some kind of mobile clinic that they set up mm-hmm. um so i mean those are some ideas i think um so we'll see yeah
0: and it seems like pope francis has a special strong call to serve the poor have other popes in the past also had similar things certainly
1: i mean even the the prior few popes mm-hmm. benedict the 16th his first encyclical god is love was about the church's charitable mission saint john paul ii how many times he spoke about the church's preferential option for the poor mm-hmm. i mean this is part of the teaching of the gospel so it's a, a perennial teaching of the church solidarity really with all people that includes uh, special concern for those who who don't have the basic necessities of life. I also think it's important sometimes to think not only about the materially poor, but those whom we might call existentially poor. Hmm. You know, there is suffering that comes from material poverty. But, you know, when I think about the suffering that people have from spiritual poverty, people who have struggles in their life, it might be mental illness mm-hmm. it might be the lack of love in their life or in their family you know all kinds of things i think we should keep this idea i don't want to minimize the importance of the material poverty but i'm very concerned about so many people who are suffering and hurting i would call them the existentially poor and and that's mm-hmm. where we need to spread the merciful love of christ to both the materially poor, but also those who are
0: existentially poor. That's interesting because the idea of supporting the poor, I think there might be a a secular version of that where it is completely just providing for material needs. There's also obviously a spiritual component, but I was kind of wondering your thoughts on the idea of, I know some religious organizations might do something like, a, in order to receive our aid, you have to participate in our church in some way. You have to go to a church service. And that doesn't come across to me as a particularly Catholic way of doing things. Is that ever appropriate? Because we do want to involve people and, and draw people into the faith, but is that ever to be used as a, uh, a bribe of sorts? No, I, I do not think so. Be, I mean, I would
1: totally oppose such things because faith has to be a free act, mm-hmm. and to make one's charitable giving dependent on that, I think is it, it's not. That's not the gospel. That's not the way God treats us. God's love extends to all, so I, I do believe that it's it's. Um, it's okay and good to invite people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, we had a soup kitchen in my parish back in Harrisburg. Um, we never asked people their religious affiliation. We mm-hmm. never required anyone to go to church. Now, we would say a grace, a prayer before meals, and uh-huh. I mean, if people chose not to join in that prayer, that's their choice. Sure. But we're still gonna feed them, and we witness to the love of Christ uh, to them, and we can invite them. To church, invite them to mass, but never uh, make our charitable giving or the food we we provide contingent upon they're doing something like that.
0: And I bring that up because that's always been my experience with the Catholic church and Catholic organizations is it's uh, when we provide services, it's for all. Whereas I've seen some other churches and other denominations have a kind of a a carrot over the stick that if you want our help, then you need to come to this event first. And, and, I, I guess I can understand the idea of it, that their soul is so much more important than their material needs. Um, but how do we balance that, I guess, this idea of wanting to evangelize wanting to spread the faith and sharing that without maybe confusing that with yeah. being a contingent? Well, you know,
1: again, I'd go back to God's love is gratuitous. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, and I think that's why our love has to be uh, gratuitous and not contingent. In answer to the spiritual hungers that people have, that's where we do offer, we do invite, you know, invite people to prayer. But we're bearing witness to the gospel by our actions in feeding the hungry, etc., providing shelter for the homeless. We should be sensitive to the spiritual hunger of people. In other words, for example, and I, I say this with our Saint Vincent de Paul Society because they're so good at this. When the poor come for something, often what they need more than the material thing is love and friendship, mm-hmm. to be treated with dignity, to be cared for, not just to be handed some canned goods, yeah. but to enter into conversation with them, to smile, to ask how they're doing. So I think the Christian approach and the Catholic approach isn't just giving material things, it's how you give, and it's entering entering into a dialogue with the person. Um, Sometimes the the loneliness of some people, I mean, some of the people that we had at the soup kitchen, because we fed about 200 people a day, Hmm. um, every day except Sunday at my parish in Harrisburg. You know, there were people there who had been addicts or were addicts, addicted to drugs or alcohol, some with mental illnesses. And so all of these people were not easy to, to relate to or enter into a dialogue with. Hmm. But they're God's children. And sometimes because of maybe the particular problem they have, they are constantly receiving rejection or people avoid them. People don't want to converse with them or they, they turn the other way. They try to avoid them. Well, we're called to do the opposite. And even if someone is difficult, Mm -hmm. to still try to show some friendliness and some care for that person.
0: All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260 436 95 98 and coming up We have questions like is there only one Mr. Or Mrs. Wright for someone A question about the prayer of St. Michael The Archangel and more on Truth and Charity With Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity With Bishop Rhodes I am Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop And I am asking questions that you Have submitted for Bishop to answer our first question Is why does it take so long For some of us to refine our Faith and grow up 40 years to return spiritually to the faith a sixth grader had thank god back on track guilt from wasted years you know that's a good question
1: i think some people who have stopped practicing the faith and maybe it takes many years and they revert to the practice of the faith hopefully sometime but i think because people can easily fill their lives with other things Mm. um, and the spiritual gets neglected god becomes forgotten I mean, when you think about it, there are so many diversions. One can immerse themselves in, in work, in all kinds of different uh, social activities, and just push God out of their life, stop going to Mass, neglecting prayer, whatever. And I think sooner or later, though, a person's going to have that emptiness because they're, they're really not finding true peace and joy it 's too bad if it takes you know many, many years to realize that because yeah. one is missing out on the beauty and the strength of faith and that relationship with the Lord that um, is really the he 's the stronghold of our life, our rock so why does it take so long sometimes for some people to come back? I do believe it 's because their lives get filled with other things that oftentimes aren't even that meaningful yeah,
0: and certainly not that fulfilling. Right. Next, someone asked, does Bishop think that those who are called to marriage only have one person in this world that they are compatible with? Or are there many people they could marry?
1: Oh, I think there are many people. Because compatibility, uh, I think one can find compatibility. But but I do believe that in God's plan, there's one person okay. that God has in mind for, for them. And I don't think everything happens by chance or by coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think God has a plan for each of us, you know, whether it's marriage or priesthood or consecrated life, single life. But when it comes to marriage, I always say to people to... Always be asking the Holy Spirit. I say this to the young people at confirmation when I talk about the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel. Uh-huh. I say, um, you know, to pray to the Holy Spirit and and to discern the state in life that God is calling you to. And if it is marriage, then you have to do another decision, <laughs> and that is to discern who to marry. And again, to call on the Holy Spirit and His gift of counsel, so that it's the right person. And especially to look at compatibility, and I would think especially
0: regarding living out the faith. Mm -hmm. I suppose those called to religious life would have a similar second step of which order would I join as well.
1: Yeah, or even when I was discerning the priesthood, I had to make the decision between entering a religious congregation or becoming a diocesan seminarian. sure. And I remember it took me some time to discern that God
0: was calling me to be a diocesan priest. All right. Someone wrote in, I like that we're praying the St. Michael prayer more often now. Is it true that Pope Leo the Thirteenth wrote it after hearing a conversation between God and the devil?
1: Yes. Now, I don't know if a lot of people know the history of of the uh, saint michael prayer but pope leo the 13th who was pope at the end of the 19th century he um in the 1880s he had this uh some kind of an experience after celebrating mass we don't really have a precise historical account mm-hmm. of what exactly happened but we know that he was praying his prayer of thanksgiving mm-hmm. after mass and people who who were there saw that he was kind of like in a trance like <laughs> he was transfixed like like someone having a vision mm-hmm. um, and when he got up after praying he looked visibly troubled <laughs> according to witnesses and he went to his private office and you know some of the aid, his aides were concerned like what happened what's up why is he look troubled and upset and he came out of the his office a few uh well i don't know a short time later Mm -hmm. and he had written the prayer to saint michael and then it ended up being added to the the mass the low mass that was celebrated at that time so there's various accounts of what exactly did he see or hear the general gist is that he had a vision Hmm. Kind of like, uh, similar to the beginning of the book of Job in the Old Testament, God and, and Satan uh, speaking, but the devil in this vision of Pope Leo evidently told Jesus that he could destroy the church hmm. and if he had more time, and if he had more power. And our Lord, like God in, in the book of Job, granted the devil his request. And according to reports about this, there would be a a century in which the devil would have more power. So there's a you know there's some accounts that say Pope Leo actually heard this conversation between Jesus and the devil. But in any event, we know that he intuited that there'd be terrors for the church, that there would be and the world, that there would be this diabolical influence. And that's why he wrote the prayer, asking for the protection of St. Michael, as we say, defend us in battle, hmm. be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. And, and not only did he write it, he mandated it be prayed everywhere at the end of Mass in all churches. Hmm. Um, with the, the crisis that we've been facing, a number of us bishops have asked to our parishes to recite this prayer at the end of Mass. And... Uh, a lot of our our parishes i know are doing so Mm -hmm. and um you know as i said after pope leo mandated it it was discontinued in 1964 and that's when we had the reform of the liturgy after the council or towards the end of the council but i remember st john paul ii at one of his angelus i think it was a one of his angelus addresses Mm -hmm. he um encourage people not to forget the prayer of st michael and john paul said how much we need that prayer today so i hope people and it's interesting as i've been celebrating masses in parishes uh, since i asked this i'm kind of surprised how many people have it memorized yeah i didn't realize that people were still memorizing and 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 praying the st michael prayer but they are because People don't have to look down now. Some do. Some have yeah. to look it and read it, but or just kind of mumbling along. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I notice there's a few different translations out there, which kind of confuse me. Right. I mean, I I just say the one that I
0: learned as a child. Do you I, cast into hell, or do you thrust into hell? Thrust into hell. And is he your safeguard or your protection? Protection. Okay. Protection. <laughs> and
1: um, thrust into hell, Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world. Uh-huh. There's another translation. That doesn't use the word prowl, oh what is it that I've heard when I've been yeah, yeah,, yeah. so I get a little confused now our Sunday visitors prese- is uh printing prayer cards, oh good, and uh, so I gave them what I the the prayers I learned it, which I think is more traditional uh-huh. so um you know it might be good for our parishes to order those so that we're all saying the same right. <laughs> the same
0: right. translation. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed
1: be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. God bless you, everyone.
2: Join us next Wednesday at noon for another new episode of Truth and Charity. Bishop Rhodes will begin to break down the book of Revelation's history and symbolism, including where and when it was written, as well as why it was meaningful for Christians back then and today. And as always, the show will wrap up with questions submitted by listeners. To submit yours, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. Hit Audio Library to hear all our previous episodes. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.